It is my desire to be led by the Spirit of the Lord in what I say. The wards and branches of the Church have been organized to give activity to a large number of its members, the greatest majority, actually. Yet there are many within, with no official position or no specific responsibility which call them to do some formal act for the organization. They belong to the church, they belong to the stake, they belong to the ward. They are invited to attend various classes and meetings designed for their instruction. But at the conclusion of a meeting, they go home, having no particular appointment to arouse them to organizational activity. Many of them feel they are being left out, that their talents are not wanted. Others do not want to accept any responsible calling. This may be because they do not understand the responsibility they have to the Church of Jesus Christ. Each of us has the same general calling. Each of us has the same responsibility as a result of entering into the waters of baptism and making the covenant. The Lord will not hold us blameless if we allow organizational responsibility or the lack of it to interfere with this special calling. Let me point out some necessary obligations in the words of the prophets. Jeremiah said to a people who were rebellious and recalcitrant, Do no violence to the stranger. He may have needed to say it in that day. The fatherless, the widow. Of a king, he said with approbation, he judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, saith the Lord? These heavenly instructions were reiterated by the Lord through Micah when he told the people that what was required was to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Paul told the saints to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, having charity one to another. Alma was a little more specific. He urged them to cry to the Lord over all their activities and their possessions for the welfare of themselves and those about them. Their whole attitude should be one of prayer to the Lord for all they had and all they were. Then he said, do not suppose that this is all. For after ye have done all these things, if ye turn away the needy and the naked, and visit not the sick and the afflicted, and impart of your substance, if ye have, to those who stand in need, I say unto you, if ye do not any of these things, behold, your prayer is vain and availeth you nothing. And ye are hypocrites, and do, not, and do deny the faith. Therefore, if ye do not remember to be charitable, ye are as dross, which the refiners do cast out, it being of no worth, and is trodden under foot of man. The revelations given to Joseph Smith the prophet of the Restoration on this subject are numerous and were among the early ones. To care for the poor is one of our first and early obligations. To help the needy and those who mourn <clears throat> follow close behind. <clears throat> All of us have some time, but those who are not given great responsibility in the organizations have more time to seek out the poor, the needy, and the helpless. And this help is badly needed. All about us are those in need of encouragement, assistance, and help. Help of a kind we can all give, not money, but time and attention, personal encouragement, especially to those who must bear great responsibility for loved ones and who cannot pass it on to others for the simple reason there is no one else to pass it on to. 
What great relief would come to a young mother with a sick child if one assisted her for a while? A little time, not just calling on the confined for five minutes, but for an hour reading, helping, feeding, cheering, will change whole attitudes. You will find the need in many homes. Once when I had responsibility for an invalid, a good woman said, I'm coming to your house every Friday night from 6 until 10. You can count on it. So plan to go at 6 and find relief for those four hours. How blessed she was to me. How good. She blessed both me and the invalid by new cheer, new smiles, new ideas. There are many lonely people, people whose loneliness is hidden. We need to seek them out and relieve them. There are those who feel they are not accepted, who need to be built up in spirit and help to find themselves. There are unmarried girls away from home who think no one cares. There are those troubled in spirit. It occurs to me that family home evening could occasionally be time to bring in some of the lonely ones, some of the fearful, some of the downhearted, some of those troubled in spirit. I know of a prominent worker with a big church assignment, but who has no ward responsibility. Weekly, she went to Sunday school and sacrament meeting and came away feeling that she was no part of the program. Then she became aware of a sister who had been raised without a knowledge of the gospel and who came to the door of the church on Sundays but was afraid to enter and who then would return home. She helped her to enter and to become enlarged in her soul. Then she noticed a man, a non-member who was almost a member, and changed his outlook into membership. She noticed several single girls without purpose and gave them the desire to be what they could be. She was interested in the aged and gave encouragement to young men nearing the age to go on missions. Suddenly, she found herself a big part of the ward, not by a bishop's appointment, but by obeying the law which calls us to be our brother's keeper. We may be sure that if there are many children or invalids or aged in a home, it is almost a certainty that such homes need help. O oh, ye saints, do not pine if you have not presidency or teaching positions. Be anxiously engaged in the good cause and do many things of your own free will. You may come nearer your heaven by the unobtrusive help you render those standing in need of comfort, succor, and attention. You won't feel important to the organization, but the angels will be smiling as they record the hours of church service given to those whom the Lord loves and to whom he personally directed his own effort, the poor, the downtrodden, the needy, the ill, the discouraged. We are all church workers, those with specific assignments, and those with none are required by revelation to go to the house of prayer weekly to offer up their oblations. We then renew our pledges to remember him who is our Savior and to keep his commandments, the second one of which is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Having entered the covenant, this covenant, it is our responsibility to seek diligently to show this love through our deeds. <clears throat> Those with no ward assignments have more time to pursue this great work of the salvation of souls. Let us not sit back jealous of those giving attention to the stake and the ward and the auxiliaries, but seek our salvation where the Lord pointed us, among those who weak in spirit, weak in body, or weak in desire need to be encouraged need to be raised up to the kingdom of God on this earth. I know that home teachers are responsible for these needs, but often those at home conceal the needs from them. I know there are visiting teachers, but still there are many who hide their needs from them. <laughs> I know the priesthood is expected to be alert, 
that this responsibility goes beyond the organized priesthood. This is a personal obligation which no living soul who loves the Lord can dismiss. It is one to which we must ever be alert. The needy neighbor could be next door. The one in need may, may not be a member of the church. It can be anybody who stands in need. I know of no one who is exempt from the responsibility of constant succor and personal encouragement. To many who never report their difficulties to the bishop, but who in spite of pride and even of means badly need the help, the understanding and love we all can give as individuals. This echoes what James said. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. One last word from the Lord to us in this day. And remember, in all things, the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted, for he that doth doeth not these things, the same is not my disciple. I know that Jesus Christ lives, and that his Holy Father lives also. I sustain President Joseph Fielding Smith as the living prophet with all my heart. I know, too, of the blessings which come to both the giver and the receiver when one obeys the injunction that the way to love the Lord is to love and serve his neighbors. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, and to those of our friends who are listening over the air, I pray for the guidance of the Spirit during these few moments that I shall stand before you. Some time ago I was visited by a journalist from a large intermountain newspaper who came to inquire about the missionary activities of the Church. After we had explained our churchwide activities in missions now being uh, expanded into such areas as Fiji Islands, Korea, Hong Kong, Indonesia, Thailand, Spain, Italy, and heretofore remote areas of Latin America and among the Indian tribes, she asked, as she contemplated the magnitude of the worldwide activities, are you people out to convert the world? I replied by quoting the Master's commission to his early disciples, and he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, that he but he that believeth not shall be damned. Then the Master spoke of signs which would evidence the divinity of their callings. So after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven. Then, as the gospel writers recorded, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with the signs following. I then recalled for her the revelations, the words of a revelation to the Lord's disciples of the early years of this dispensation, that through their administration the word may go forth unto the ends of the earth, unto the Gentiles first, and then, behold, and lo, they shall turn to the Jews. For it shall come to pass in that day that every man shall hear the fullness of the gospel in his own language through those who are ordained unto this power. End of the quotation. We are witnessing a great expansion of the work of the Church throughout the world. It would seem that the early revelation of the Lord to the Church pointed us to a preparation for this day when he promised, Behold, I will take care of your flocks, meaning, of course, the congregations of Church members, and will raise up elders and send unto them. Behold, I will hasten my work in its time. During the past several months, we have spent much time in countries of the Far East and in the European countries where we have been brought face to face with large congregations of our members and others not of our faith. Never, it seems, has there ever been more unmistakable evidence of a need for spiritual guidance, guidance as we met throughout our visits in these countries who are seeking for answers to problems which confront them on every side. We have sensed that everywhere there is much dissatisfaction with the churches to which they have belonged. 
The real reason for this decline seems to stem from the fact, as one columnist has summarized it, and I quote, organized religion isn't being attacked. It is busily committing suicide by trying to keep up with the Jane Fonda and Timothy Leary type of relevance, which would tune out that, quote, corny old Bible, split out that uh, quotation, moldy church, and turn on with relevance, unquote. They want a true definition of what constitutes divine authority. They are clamoring, clamoring for security or a salvation not just in the world to come, but for a temporal salvation here and now that they don't have to die to get. There is a need for their churches to have concern about the personal welfare of the individual so that each one could be aided to help himself through a unified church effort and a brother, brotherhood in the church which concerns itself with temporal and social, as well as his spiritual needs. They are looking for a church where it is not only a unity to be found within their local congregations, but which reaches out to a unification of effort in meeting the challenging problems confronting mankind, where a church congregation in one nation links hands with those of a common faith that spans the continents and the oceans and proclaims a universal brotherhood to which they may look with confidence in matters of health and education and strengthening of home ties and in evolving and promoting constructive church activities where youth are taught correct principles so that they can learn to become effective leaders themselves, where wholesome activities are in such abundance that there is less time to engage in the evils which beckon on every side. In short, the demand everywhere is for a church which is holding fast to the basic ideals of Christianity, as the Apostle James has defined it. And I quote, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. There we have found a demand for strong central authority which inspires a confidence that shows the way ahead, where the strong are marshaled to give liberally of their leadership, of their means, of their talents, and where the weak are urged to a maximum of efforts in providing for themselves, where emergency needs can be met in a way that fosters brotherhood, instead of a deadening process which is described spiritually as grinding down the faces of the poor. Never has there been a greater need in the Church for training in leadership and in effective teachings to offset the clever and diabolical methods of evil powers which pacify and lull them away into carnal security, stirring them up to anger, saying that all is well, and with flattery telling them there is no hell, nor is there a devil, for this is the way, as the ancient prophets have warned, that the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. It was frightening to observe that in places where there was the greater prosperity, that there was the unmistakable evidence that, like the peoples of other dispensations, when they prospered they forgot God. They were seemingly rich in things that money could buy, but they were devoid of most of the precious things that money could not buy. The prophets have issued a clear signal of warning to those who are lifted up in the pride of their hearts because of their ease and their exceeding great prosperity. Yea, this prophet said, We see that at the very time when he doth prosper his people, yea, then is the time that they do harden their hearts and do forget the Lord their God and do trample under their feet the Holy One, yea, and this because of their exceeding great pro prosperity. And so do we, as we witness these things, lament with those who have gone before us. Yea, how quick to be lifted up in, the pri in pride! Yea, how quick to boast! And do all manner of that which is iniquity! And how slow are they to remember the Lord their God! and give ear unto his counsels, yea, how slow to walk in wisdom's path. There comes back to us more clearly than ever before the application of the words of the Master as he closed his Sermon on the Mount. That only that person or that church, meaning a congregation of individuals, of course, which will stand through these testing years 
will be those that are founded upon the rock, as the Master declared, by hearing and obeying the fundamental and never-changing principles upon which the true Church is founded. When the winds of delusion blow, or when the floods of filth and wickedness engulf us, or when the rains of criticism or derision or rain down upon those who are holding fast to the truth. Constantly there come among us men and women of great renown, and their observations as they learn of the Church and its far-reaching activities are, in a sense, but confirmation of what the Apostle Paul declared long ago to the Romans. And I quote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul said, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Now note this particularly. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness." Unquote. One such renowned lecture at the Bonneville Knife and Fork Club, uh, Mr. George Roney, uh, remarked to me after, at his request, I had taken him to see some of the Church welfare activities. This is what he said. Your welfare program should engulf the world, and I have no doubt after seeing it in operation that one day it will be the master plan for Christian living. Frequently, prominent visitors have inquired about the educational system of the Church by which outside of our school institutions and within our seminaries and institutes, the Church is reaching out to every home with home primaries on weekdays for small children and with home study courses on weekdays for the youth for the teaching of vital principles essential to Christian living. These visitors invariably have sought for the secret as to how our school campuses have been able to maintain law and order. This question, of course, is prompted an explanation of the family home evening programs in the homes from which most of our youth have come. Attention is called to the student organizations among our college youth, where students themselves are organized into church units and are schooled in how they can communicate responsibly in the way the Lord's plan provides. These observations and many others similarly are sobering and challenging for us to strive the more diligently to carry out the perfect plan which has been given us, by which the world may be saved if all men would be constrained to seek diligently, to pray always, and be believing, so that all things might work together for their good and his name's glory. We have just come from a historic conference of the members of the Church in the British Isles at Manchester, England. Here we've had assembled an all-British congregation of over 12,000 members. The intensity of the interest there manifest bore eloquent witness to the growing awareness that the kingdom of God, meaning, of course, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is worldwide, and that the people of Great Britain have a firm resolution to establish the Church more firmly in their native land. This was dramatically demonstrated when they concluded the three-day conference with an original song composed by one of their local leaders entitled, This Is Our Place. This song of theirs concluded with this impressive declaration. Quote, God is, God's work is ours. We must not fail to labor with our heart and strength. With him beside us we'll not fear. Here we will live. Here we will serve. We held, we held the first general conference of this character in the British Isles because here it was that the earliest mission was established in a foreign land and because of its great contribution to the early growth of the Church, which gave evidence to the great outpouring of the blood of Israel among the peoples of the British Isles. As we visit the various countries, whether in the Far East or in the European areas or in the Latin American nations or in other parts of the world, we have noted, as in the British Isles, the unmistakable signs of a strong desire on the part of our Church members to see the Church grow in their own countries. They are looking for a day when their membership and a developed leadership will be able to assume positions of responsibility to preside over districts and missions and temples, if and when their strength will be so manifest as to govern themselves 
after they have been taught correct principles. It is a standing marvel to see how susceptible these leaders are to training in the church when they have been taught by someone to show the way. As church members catch the spirit of the work, they have an intense desire to go to a holy temple where they can receive the promised blessings of the priesthood, which through their faithfulness will gain them heaven's highest privileges in the world to come. Everywhere we have gone and here at home, men are asking as to our efforts in behalf of the so-called underprivileged peoples. This has given us the opportunity to explain how, from the finding of new converts, there proceeds step by step the introduction of the family home evening program, where parents are helped with family problems, small units of organizations of Sunday schools, branches, and districts, culminating into stakes for a purpose, as the Lord revealed, to provide for a defense and for a refuge from the storm and from wrath when it should be poured out without mixture upon the whole earth. And when I recall the words of the heavenly messenger to the young prophet in the early beginning of this dispensation, that the purpose of the restored church was to prepare a people ready to receive the coming of the Lord. As I recall this, I remember that when the disciples gathered around the Master before he left them, they asked him as to the signs of his second coming and the end of the world or the destruction of the wicked, which was the end of the would be the end of the world. He gave them certain signs by which that would foretell his second coming. But that his second coming was near, even at their very doors. He spoke of great tribulations, of wars and famines and earthquakes. One of the most significant among the other signs of which the Master spoke, and about which I had often wondered, was that prior to his coming there would be false Christs and false prophets who would show great signs and wonders in order to deceive the faithful who were looking forward to the glorious day when the Master will return again to the earth. We are actually seeing this present among us today, where individuals are coming forward today with claims of deity for their leaders. These arch-deceivers are among us, and some have come in person claiming to be God, and we may well expect others to rise up and do likewise in fulfillment of the Master's declaration that false Christs and false prophets would come forth. And we are, we are witnessing in our own communities a desecration of the sacred name of the Lord and Master pictured in a most ridiculous way. The Master gave us the sure way for the saints to herald the coming of our Lord again to the earth, as he promised. This is how the Savior said he would appear. Note his words. Wherefore, if they, meaning the false Christs, should say unto us, or you, be, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. If we could remember that, and put to flight all the foolish ideas about how the Savior will appear, we would be ready when he comes. In preparation for that marvelous event, the Master counseled, Watch, therefore, for you know not at what hour the Lord doth come. Therefore be ye ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Then there was this promise to his servants who had been living faithfully. Blessed is that servant when his Lord shall come and shall find him doing. A few days ago, we had a faith-promoting report from a young mission president and his wife who have just been released from presiding over a mission in Peru, where recently there was experienced one of the worst calamities in the history of the world, where an estimated 70,000 persons were buried when an earthquake moved an entire mountain over two cities which were completely destroyed. We had four missionaries laboring here, two in each city, when the earth, then the, when the earthquake came, they were at the Lord's business. Two of our elders were teaching a gospel lesson in the outskirts of the town, and the other two were in a preparation meeting in another city. After the three terrifying days of semi-darkness from the choking dust, 
they philosophized that this might be like the time when the Savior was crucified, when there were three days of darkness, and when he would come again, when there should be two at the mill, one should be taken and the other should be left. Two would be working in the field, one should be taken and the other left. When this earthquake struck, every person was taken as he was then living. If at a movie, or in a tavern, or in a drunken stupor, or whatever, but the true servants of God who would be doing their duty would be protected and preserved if they would do as the Lord had counseled, to stand and in holy places and be not moved when these days should come. So we are saying to our church members in every land, everywhere, stand in your places and say as do the British saints sang, have sung. God's work is ours. We must not fail to labor with our heart and strength. With him beside us we'll not fear. Here we will live. Here we will serve. To our faithful saints everywhere and to our friends who are the honest in heart, we say, go to your homes following this great conference. Have your family prayers. Keep your home ties strong and let love abound therein. You who are the priesthood watchmen, don't fail in the sacred charge to watch over the church and be with and strengthen them. You leaders put into full gear the total programs which are heaven sent in these days to stem the tide of wickedness which is rolling over the earth as an avalanche. Lighten your individual burdens, you leaders, by increasing the activities of others that all may be benefited thereby. Above all, teach the gospel of Jesus Christ with power and authority and continue to bear witness of the divine mission of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And to you, our friends who are the honest in heart and who are sincere seekers after truth, we bear our solemn witness that through the atonement of Christ all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel as administered by authorized servants who hold the keys of salvation both for the living and for the dead. I would that all who are within the sound of my voice would be comforted. In this dispensation, as, in, as those in other troublous times have been comforted and shielded from the pitfalls of the adversary, hear the Master's words as he referred to his people as his children. Fear not, little children, for you are mine, and I have overcome the world. And you are them, they of whom my Father hath given me. And none of them that my Father hath given me shall be lost. Wherefore, I am in your midst. I am the good shepherd, the stone of Israel. He that buildeth upon this rock shall never fall. And the day cometh that you shall hear my voice and see me and know that I am. And then he said, Watch therefore that ye may be ready. I believe with all my soul that that promise is for you and me today, as we qualify ourselves to be worthy to be called his children. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Not long ago, I listened to a noted speaker discuss modern trends with regard to youth. He called attention to the fact that young people today are following divergent courses to those traveled by their parents. The speaker pointed out the concern of parents for their children whom they believe are being misdirected by the modern innovations of society. Considerable time was spent by the speaker discussing the generation gap in the modern home between those of the new generation and their parents. He then took a position on the side of youth, claiming there must be this generation gap if the world is to make real progress because parents are from the past generation and we need new thinking, new ideas, and a change from the old. His contention was that if children follow the same course as their parents, 
There would never be progress. Therefore, we must accept the new, even though it is forced by an uprising of the modern generation against the established ways of the past. He asked this question, Who can say that the old is better than the new until it is tried and tested? In continuing his argument, he stated that the breach or the difference between parents and youth need not be permanent, but for the temporary purpose of new thought and progress preliminary to a more matured relationship in which parents would better understand the ideals and endeavors of their children, and children would better understand their parents. The relationship between the two would then become stronger because of this adjustment, which would weld together the old and the young as their differences are resolved by intellectual compromise. Then followed an unusual citation of scripture in support of this proposition. The closing two verses of the last book of the Old Testament were read. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. No passage in Scripture gives students of the Old Testament greater problems of interpretation than this one in the book of Malachi regarding the sending of Elijah to turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers. Who is the prophet Elijah who is to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord? Let me review some of the highlights of his life. The first mention of Elijah in the record refers to him as being from Tishbe of Gilead east of Jordan, in the area of Galilee. The events with which he was associated occurred in the ninth century before the birth of Christ. This great prophet was one of the leaders in defending Jehovah as the true God of Israel against those who were advancing Baal worship. His life is associated with many miracles. Elijah prophesied to King, to King Ahab that there would be a drought, and a drought did come to the land. The prophet went to the east of Jordan by the brook Cherith. The brook provided him with water, and the Lord caused him to be fed by ravens morning and night. Because of the drought, the brook dried up, and he sought another refuge. The Lord directed him to a poor widow who lived with her only son. Elijah found her at the gate of the city and asked for water and bread. And the widow answered, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise, and behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah told her not to fear, and the handful of meal and the cruise of oil would not diminish, and it did sustain them through the long drought. During this time, the widow's son became ill and died or was close to death. Elijah called upon the Lord, and the boy began to breathe again and was given life. Later, the Lord appeared to Elijah and told him to go to King Ahab, and the drought would be broken. Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Tyre, where uh, the god Baal was worshipped. She brought her religion with her, introduced Baalism to the Hebrews, and carried on an attack against the religion of the Hebrews and against Israel's god. When Elijah went to King Ahab to tell him of the end of the drought, Ahab accused him of causing trouble in, a, in, um, in Israel. Elijah charged Abra, uh, 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 Ahab with forsaking the commandments of the Lord and following Baal. 
he challenged the prophets of Baal, supported by Jezebel, to come to Mount Carmel and determine whether God or Baal was God, or the Lord or Baal was God. And Ahab gathered Israel to the place, and Elijah stood against the 450 prophets of Baal while the people watched. The contest was to build two altars, one for the Lord and the other for Baal, and to place thereon sacrificial bullock on unkindled wood. Whichever deity answered by fire would be accepted as God. The 450 prophets commenced first. They called upon Baal from morning until noon, but there was no answer. In their frenzy, they leaped upon the altar, cut themselves with their knives and, and lancets until the blood gushed out, but still no answer. Then came Elijah's turn. He called for barrels of water to be poured upon the sacrifice which he had prepared, and he said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people will know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire from the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. The heavens turned black with clouds and with wind, and the torrential rains came and ended the drought. Jezebel became angry and threatened Elijah, and he fled south to Beersheba and into the wilderness of Sinai. His encounter with the Lord in the wilderness has become the theme which Mendelssohn put to music in the beautiful Elijah Oratorio. On the mount he felt the power of the wind, the rocks of Sinai were broken to pieces. There was an earthquake and fire, and in the calm that followed, the voice of the Lord was heard to say, What doest thou here, Elijah? He answered, The children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, and they seek my life to take it away. Truth Two troops of soldiers were sent to capture him, but Elijah called down fire from heaven, and they were consumed. Elijah, the great defender of Jehovah and his friend Elisha, walked together from Jericho to the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle and smote the waters. They divided, and the two crossed over on dry land. And it came to pass, as they still went on and, and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. The story of Elijah is in the Old Testament, and reference is made to him in the New Testament. But without further revelation, we would be left in darkness as to his mission and the meaning of the promise stated in Malachi. The very first written revelation of this dispensation being the statement of the angel Moroni to the prophet Joseph Smith repeats almost the same words used by Malachi and indicates that Elijah was yet to come. Eight years later, a few days after the dedication of the Kirkland Temple, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery had finished praying together in the temple when a marvelous vision was manifested to them. Let me read just a few lines as recorded in the 110th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. The veil was taken from our minds and the eyes of our understanding were opened. The Lord appeared to them on the breastwork of the pulpit and spoke to them, 
Moses appeared, then Elias, and the record continues. After this vision had closed, another great and glorious vision burst upon us, for Elijah the prophet who was taken into heaven without tasting death stood before us and said, Behold, the time has fully come, which was spoken of by the mouth of Malachi, testifying that he, Elijah, should be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord come, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the children to the fathers, lest the whole earth be smitten with a curse. In centuries past, many people have lived and died without knowing the gospel. How will they be judged in the absence of this knowledge? How will they? Uh, how how can they? How can they be judged? Peter said that after Christ was crucified, but quickened by the Spirit, he went and preached into the spirits in prison. Then he adds, "For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit." Thus, those who die without knowledge of the gospel will have the opportunity to hear of it and to accept it and to accept a baptism. Does it seem reasonable that persons who have lived upon the earth and died without the opportunity of baptism should be deprived throughout eternity? Is there anything unreasonable about the living perf uh, the performing baptisms for the dead? Perhaps the greatest example of vicarious work for the dead is the Master himself. He gave his life as a vicarious atonement that all who die shall live again and have life everlasting. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. In a similar way, we can perform ordinances for those who did not have the opportunity to do them in lifetime. Not only may baptisms be performed for the dead, but endowments, also sealings be by which wives may become eternal companions to husbands and their children sealed to them as a family. The sealing of family units can be continued until the family of God is made perfect. This is the great work of the dispensation of the fullness of times by which the hearts of the fathers are turned to the children and the hearts of the children to fathers. The uniting and redemption of the family of God was the divine plan before the foundations of the earth was laid. I bear witness that the same prophet who was fed by the ravens, by the never-depleting handful of meal and crews of oil, who brought back life to the widow's son, whose sacrifice was consumed by an unkindled fire, who was taken into heaven in a chariot of fire, has appeared in this day as foretold by Malachi. He is turning the hearts of this and the past generations toward each other. Prior to the building of temples in this dispensation and the appearance of Elijah, there was little interest seeking out and identifying families of the past. Since temples have been built, Genealogical interest in the world has increased at an accelerating rate. The gathering of hundreds of people to Salt Lake City representing 45 nations for the World's Conference on Records is a demonstration of this great interest. Let me go back to the statements made by the speaker regarding modern youth. Could the words of Malachi mean that the mission of Elijah in the last days would be to resolve differences between parents and children, restore domestic tranquility, and close the generation gap? Of course not. Revelation in this day has given us the true meaning. Let me read to you the words of Joseph Smith in answer to this question. This is the spirit of Elijah, that we redeem our dead 
and connect ourselves with our fathers which are in heaven, and seal up our dead to come forth in the first resurrection. May the spirit of Elijah burn deep in our hearts and turn us toward the temples. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brethren and sisters, I humbly ask that the Spirit of God will direct me today. The devil is mustering his forces to full strength to bring about discard, sin and sorrow among the human family. These calamities can be averted to the extent that people live the basic principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is love. On a certain occasion, a lawyer asked Jesus a question, tempting him, and said, Master, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In the days of our Savior, the Hebrew Scripture was divided into divisions. The first five books were called the Law. Another group was called the Prophets. In answering the lawyer, the Master quoted Deuteronomy and Leviticus, which were two of the books of the Hebrew Law. Thus Jesus Christ was declaring that the two great laws of love were the basis of all the religious teachings of the Hebrew Scripture. Since the first great commandment is to love the Lord our God, how can we show our love for God? We can show our love for him in our prayers, uh, given in the name of the Son, also through our worship of those divine beings. But to become all-inclusive, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. In other words, we should live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. Our eternal Father and His only begotten Son both have intensive, comprehensive, and full love for us. Uh, they have much greater intelligence and understanding than we have, and so their feelings of love go far beyond our capabilities for love. The attribute of love is so highly developed in these divine beings that the scriptures state, God is love. In fact, deity's transcendent love is above and beyond our deepest feelings and keenest conception. At times of great spiritual experience, when we feel an abundance of the Spirit, we have a greater realization of the magnitude of God's love. God is the Father of our spirits. He placed us upon this earth and provided the gospel plan of salvation through His only begotten Son thereby making it possible for us to come back into his presence and receive exaltation. Those who attain that glorious condition will experience the sweetness of love which surpasses our present understanding. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ also loved us so much that he really laid down his life and shed his blood for our sins and also to bring about a universal resurrection. Greater love hath no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. Among the entire human family, there is no example where the principle of love was demonstrated as perfectly as was shown in the life of Jesus in Palestine and in his ministry among the Nephites following his resurrection. He healed the sick, raised the dead, restored sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, and cleansed those who were afflicted with lep leprosy. His heart was filled with compassion upon the poor and any who suffered. He lifted them spiritually with his deep understanding. A beautiful example of Christ's love and compassion is given in the Book of Mormon when he blessed the little children 
to quote, And when Jesus had said these words, he wept. And the multitude bare record of it. And he took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. And when he had done this, he wept again. And he spake unto the multitude and said unto them, Behold your little ones. And as they looked to behold, they cast their eyes towards heaven. And they saw the heavens open, and they saw angels descending out of heaven, as it were, in the midst of fire. And they came down and encircled their little ones about. And they were encircled about with fire. And the angels did minister unto them. A superb example of Christ's great love is shown when he is hanging on the cross in pain and agony nigh unto death. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The central theme and the most dynamic force of the gospel of Jesus Christ is love. The Savior taught his apostles, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. Christ declared that the second great commandment was to love our neighbor as ourselves. The master teacher knew that it is human nature for all people to be self-centered. Thus, to be a, great, a good Christian, we must love other people as much as we love ourselves. If we love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, all our dealings with them will be in kindness, charity, and generosity. All our actions will be tempered with love. Jesus also taught, But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. What should be the relationship between husbands and wives, especially if they're Latter-day Saints? A husband and wife should always be gracious and kind to each other. Neither of them should say or do anything to hurt the feelings of the other. Deepest love and affection should be shown towards each other continuously. At all times, each should make a conscious effort to do everything possible to bring joy and happiness to the other. A husband should show and express appreciation for the accomplishments of his mate, and she should do likewise. We should look for ways to build each other up and make each other happy. Neither the husband nor the wife should let a day pass without expressing love for the other. We should not assume that our mate knows and it is not necessary to express it. At one time, I had the honor of having President Joseph Fielding Smith and his beloved wife, Jessie, attend the conference which I had been, to which I had been assigned. In her talk, Sister Smith said, I never let a day go by without telling my husband that I love him, and he never lets a day go by without telling me. Under these circumstances, God's blessings will shower down from heaven upon the married couple, and especially for those married by the power of the priesthood in the house of the Lord. The power from on high will bind their love and marriage of such couples for eternity. President David O. McKay, always an advocate of love and harmony in the home, stated, Homes are made permanent through love. Learn the value of self-control. You are never sorry for the words unspoken. I believe the lack of self-control is one of the most com common contributing factors of unhappiness and discard. We see something in the other which we dislike. It is easy uh, to condemn it, and that condemnatory word arouses ill feeling. If we see it and we refrain from speaking, in a few moments all is concord and peace instead of animosity and ill will. Controlling the tongue is one of the greatest contributing factors to concord in the home and one which too many of us fail to develop. Love should also characterize the center of family life. Each child should be made to feel at all times by his parents that he is of great importance in the home. Parents should express their love to their children and show them in numerous ways 
that they love them dearly. Then the Spirit of the Lord will reside in the home. The family will be love-centered and thereby God-centered. The children, in turn, will reciprocate the love to the parents and strive to please them. The goal of families who are actuated by love will be to keep the commandments of the Savior in every detail and someday come back into the presence of the Father and His only begotten Son to dwell. I bear my testimony that the true gospel of our Lord has been restored to earth again, and that the Master's Church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.